Um, I looked, uh, I looked back uh, briefly at my notes and, uh, it looks like the last time I was, uh, in this pulpit to actually preach was, uh, 2018. So it's been a while, probably arguably too long, but, um, it's a privilege to be here this morning and, uh, together remember the uh, birth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And uh, what an apt way to spend uh, Christmas Eve. Uh, please uh, turn in your Bibles to Luke 2, a very familiar passage. And I'll read uh, verses 8 through 14 as we begin this morning. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock at night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood near them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. And so the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of heavenly army of angels praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among people with whom he is pleased. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Genesis 3.15 provides the first allusion to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ beyond the veiled references in the creation account to the work of the Trinity. Your lamb shall be unblemished, male a year old, you make may take it from from the sheep or from the goats. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will come upon you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. The blood of the lamb in Exodus 12, verses 5, 7, and 13 points unmistakably to the sinless lamb of God. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and put it on a flagpole, and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten and looks at it will live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on the flagpole. And it came about 
that if a serpent bit someone and he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. The brass serpent in um, in Numbers 21, 8 through 9 is an obvious allusion uh, to uh, the Lord uh, Jesus Christ, or bronze serpent, I should say. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen. To him you shall listen. This is in accordance with everything that you asked of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, saying, Do not let me hear the voice of the Lord my God again, and do not let me see this great fire anymore, or I will die. And the Lord said to me, They have spoken well. I will raise up for them a prophet from among their countrymen, like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them everything that I command him. And it shall come about that whoever does not listen to my words, which he speaks in my name, I myself will require it of him. Jesus Christ is the long-awaited prophet. Moses in Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 19, declares the certainty of a prophet that will come one day raised up by God. This was not a general proclamation, but a specific statement focused on the coming Messiah. This is a clear declaration of our coming Messiah some 1,500 years before his birth and incarnation. For a child would be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace, There will be no one, no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on and forevermore, the seal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. This is now the. If you were in Sunday school, this is now the third time you've heard this uh, passage for obvious reasons. The Word of God makes known the Lord Jesus Christ as the Messiah long before his incarnation. The prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 9, 6 through 7, some 700 years before the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, reveals some of the most profound prophecies about the Lord Jesus Christ. The pronouncement of the future birth of the Messiah was not simply a statement of historical fact, but the stirring prophetic declaration that the God of all eternity in a moment of history would step into time, become incarnate, and in the ages to come would rule and reign over all the nations of the earth. 
These stirring characterizations describe the greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Transcendent and majestic, yet our loving shepherd and savior. The uh, days of uh, leading up to the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ were not uh, particularly uh, unique. Um, in fact, if you were in Sunday school uh, this morning, in fact, I would commend the uh, message of the morning. Uh, Tim did a great job with uh, Matthew 2. Um, he and I take probably slightly different perspectives. I think we're both using... Uh, uh, sanctified speculation, so to some extent, so neither neither one of us is uh, probably wrong or right. Maybe we're both maybe we're both wrong or both right. But at any rate, um, but after hundreds of years um, and many uh, pivotal historical events, the rise and fall of earthly kings. There was nothing distinctive about uh, this period of time. Nothing that would stir the anticipation of the people at this point in history that the Son of God would step into time. These were people not unlike you and I living their daily lives. There is nothing in scripture to indicate that they had a heightened sense of expectation about the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ at this time in history. It's not like reading a book that is visibly leading to a great climax. And yes, we know and understand the word of God is a progressive revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And for hundreds of years, events in history pointed to the fullness of time when he would be revealed. But Luke's account about the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ tells of the incarnation of our Lord and Savior, the indescribable gift who would grant peace between man and the God of the universe. Joining the story at this point in Luke's account, we find shepherds doing what they do out in the fields, keeping watch over their flocks. As a bit of an aside, if I can um, bring us back to our present day for a moment, I I find this... uh, delightfully uh, encouraging and a bit on the amusing side. Our present day is a glowing testimony to the depravity of of man, where many proclaim their uh, exaggerated self-importance and where nothing is more important than riches and the acclaim of the world. Yet in the story of Christ's birth, Common shepherds are cast in a key role announcing the most important event in all human history, the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
God enjoined himself to use lowly shepherds to herald the birth of our Savior. Shepherds. The common and almost unnoticed elements of the culture at the time of Jesus' birth. These men had the simple yet important task of guarding sheep from harm, sheep who were themselves common and unnoticed part of the culture of the day. Obviously, God is sovereign. And the shepherds were divinely appointed by God himself. However, from a human perspective, the shepherds were almost a serendipitous part of the unfolding story of the birth of Christ. Luke tells us that they were in the same region, likely some reasonable distance from Bethlehem. They were doing what shepherds do staying in the fields and caring for their flock. Their primary role was to provide protection for the sheep, guarding them from predators. The word of God gives us no indication they anticipated the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Actually, quite the opposite, as it's clear from the text that they were startled and fearful This doesn't seem like the posture of those who were anticipating um, the events that were about to unfold. Verse 9 of Luke 2 tells us, An angel of the Lord suddenly stood near them. Because of our familiarity with this passage, and by the way, like many of you, we we, uh, our family reads this at the uh, beginning of our day on uh, Christmas uh, morning, and uh, tomorrow will be no no different. But I think it's uh, it's easy to gloss over these words and almost shrug at the significance. <laughs> this is an angel of the Lord. I mean, this this is. Uh, speaking to these shepherds. And these were lowly shepherds. Further, further, Luke says, the glory of the Lord shone around them. And uh, <clears throat> I... Uh, you know, not to not to sound flippant, and I don't mean I don't mean this in a lighthearted uh, or casual way. But the picture that Luke paints is is frankly uh, unbelievable, and uh, you know, it's not like these shepherds were were standing around talking and and you know, hey Jim, um, remember not to. Uh, He's my dear friend, Jim's name. But, uh, uh, hey, Jim, remember what the prophet Isaiah mentioned 700 years ago? Um, Some are saying the time of the birth could happen any day. No. In fact, the text of Luke in verse 9 says, And an angel of the Lord suddenly 
stood near them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened, is the wording of the text. This was a highly abnormal event, showcasing the most important event and occasion in all of history. And again, I don't want to be overly animated, but I think it would be hard to over-exaggerate what Luke is saying here. An angel of the Lord suddenly stood near them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. This is an angel dispatched by God himself from heaven to appear before the shepherds. He carried with him a glorious message that would forever change the history of mankind. To be sure, the events of this day were conceived and ordered before the world began. But at this point in history and time, an angel of the Lord made the pronouncement. This side of heaven, I think it's difficult for us to fully comprehend what is meant by the glory of the Lord shown around them. Strictly speaking, the word glory only has meaning in the context of talking about the Lord. We can glean some relative perspective by thinking about other passages in Scripture where the Lord showed forth his glory. Recall the Lord providing meat for the children of Israel in Exodus 16, 9 through 10, where it says, Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, Come forward before the Lord, for he has heard your grumblings. And it came about as Aaron spoke to the entire congregation of the sons of Israel that they looked toward the wilderness and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And similarly, the grandeur of the words of the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 6, 1 through 4. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim were standing above him, each having six wings, with two each covered his face, and with two each covered his feet, with two each flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. The obvious point isn't the lowly startled shepherds as much as we marvel at the Lord revealing himself to the most humble and despised. But the point is the fact that the God of creation would condescend to announce the stunning birth of his son and our savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Then in verse 10, 
The angel attempts to calm the fears of the shepherd and said, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all people. The culmination of biblical prophecies and a historical narrative were climaxing in the revelation of the incarnate Son of God. Note that this was not simply an announcement of epic proportions, although it was. The angel's proclamation to the shepherd was meant as good news. Think, think, think about it for a moment. This not only illumines the greatness of God, but demonstrates the intimate love the God of heaven has for his creation. He stoops down to announce the astonishing truth of the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The good news is the gospel. The Lord Jesus Christ came to earth to solve a problem that only God himself could solve. In fact, the issue goes deeper than that. The good news the angel speaks of pierces the darkness of men's sinfulness and reveals a problem that man is completely oblivious to apart from the work of the Spirit of God. Consider the words of the Apostle Paul, And uh, I know we're all very familiar with these. I just um, say them um, as, uh, as Peter would say, to stir up your pure minds by way of reminder. Starting in uh, Romans 3, verses 9 through 18. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, There is no no righteous person, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks out God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and they have not known the way of peace. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Man left to himself has no concept of the depth of his great need, much less the solution, the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Despite the hopelessness of man's condition, God dispatches an angel from heaven to make the simple declaration, Behold, I bring you good news 
of great joy. Stop and think about it. The simplicity of the gospel is breathtakingly stunning. This simple pronouncement by the angel places no demands on man, no conditions that must be fulfilled, no, no, no qualifications that constrain eligibility. This is nothing less than the God of heaven reaching down to man to give the good news of the gospel. In scripture, an imperative always grows out of of an um, imperative always grows out of an um, indicative. Simple words of John 1, 419 provide a beautiful illustration of this. John says, we love him because he first loved us. The good news proclaimed by the angel is an indicative. God reaches down to us. The simplicity and beauty of this is is a stunning testimony to the grace of our precious Savior. He did it all. Ours is to simply trust and humbly take refuge in the greatness of what he accomplished. In a moment of time, he stepped into eternity. In our flesh, we often confound imperatives and indictives, believing that we need to do something. The only thing we need to do is to rest in the simplicity of the gospel. This plain proclamation made by the angels, behold, I bring you good news of great joy. Think of the words of the Apostle Paul in Galatians 1, 6 through 9. I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But if even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have revealed, let him be accursed. 
it's too easy to confound the simplicity of the gospel. In light of Paul's warning, the angel was proclaiming the real gospel. As believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we risk letting this become a simple and trite phrase that is too easily obscured and swallowed up by our traditions. This is the gospel. This is where we find true rest. This is the most important announcement through all history. We as the people of God are the benefactors of what the angel is saying. Again, this is not a general announcement. This announcement was first made to the shepherds and by extension to you and me as a result of God's glorious revelation through his word. In verse 11, the angel goes on to declare the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, the long-awaited Messiah, heralded by the prophets through centuries of history. Again, stop and think about the biblical historical record and the untold times scripture anticipates the coming Messiah. Then, in a moment in time, an angel makes a pronouncement to unsuspecting shepherds about the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 11 says, For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Beyond what is revealed to us in the Word of God, I struggle, quite honestly, with the enormity of the challenge to um, use the English language to express the significance of this simple yet profound message. The God of creation, as Paul expresses in Colossians 1, 15 through 18, comes to earth as the incarnate Son of God. Paul says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him All things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Or think about Paul's words in Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, as he already existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a bondservant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, 
on the death on the cross. The pronouncement of the angel to the shepherds heralds the incarnation and condescension of the Son of God. It's astonishing and frankly incomprehensible that the creator of the universe, the very one who holds all things together by the word of his power, would be born in the likeness of men. The good news proclaimed by the angel of the Lord is fulfilled in the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. The long-awaited Messiah now steps into time. The angel of the Lord illumines the core good news, the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, in this verse, the angel utilizes four titles for the Lord. The city of David, which is Bethlehem's, makes allusions to the son of David uses the word Savior, and this is uh, critical to our understanding of the good news. The angel proclaims, the Lord Jesus Christ saves us from death and destruction. We need to be saved from the wrath of God to come. We live in such a um, self, uh, self-indulgent self nation Even as Christians, we run the risk of losing perspective on how much we need a Savior. I I recently had a friend tell me um, he doesn't need God. He's a very resourceful man. He's um, been richly uh, rewarded uh, by the world's standards and uh, quite honestly has endured much hardship But like the fool of Psalms 14 and 53, he says, there is no God, no God, no God for me, no mas. And then the word Christ, the Messiah, he is the sent one of God. This occurs some 514 times in the New Testament. So not an uncommon reference to the Lord. As I alluded to earlier, Christ is the central theme and a revelation of all of Scripture. And then lastly, the fourth reference, the word Lord. Obviously, um, the reference to Lord highlights the, the fact that he is sovereign God. This is the only place where this specific phrase is used, specifically Christ the Lord an unmistakable declaration that this baby born in Bethlehem is Jehovah. And again, it's mind-bending to think about the fact that the creator of the universe condescended to become like one of his creatures, that he might be our savior. Utterly breathtaking. In verse 12, the angel continues by announcing that the Lord is born in a manger. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. It's easy to gloss over these words that many of us have heard tens of times, if not hundreds. 
and miss, miss the significance of what Luke is saying. Again, this is the sovereign king of the universe condescending to become a man. Further, his entrance into the world is not marked by great pomp and circumstance. He's not born in a palace among royalty and great rulers of the world, but in the lowliest of circumstances. In fact, the angel in verse 11 declares that this one was born is the Savior, Christ the Lord. And thinking through um, several paradoxes of this of this passage, it occurred to me that there's a sense in which these paradoxes in this uh, passage are a microcosm of all of Scripture. The, the infinite, glorious, and righteous God of heaven and earth reveals himself in the pages of Scripture. The infinite condescends to reveal himself to the finite. I mean, it's just, <laughs> it's staggering. And there's a sense in which all of scripture is a paradox. Infinite God encounters finite man. This account in Luke is more than simply a historical narrative of the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, but the revelation of the incomprehensible God incarnate. In verse 13 And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of heavenly army of angels praising God and saying, the angel is joined by a heavenly host. In Revelation 5.11, it gives some sense of the sheer number of angels. It says, then I looked and heard the voices of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. It's likely the number of angels were without number. Again, the picture painted by scripture run contrary to human reason. The God of all creation steps into time, becomes a man. His birth is acclaimed as good news in the most expansive way bringing peace between a holy God and sinful man. Further, this message is delivered to the shepherds, poor lowly shepherds as judged by the world, shepherds that give life and meaning to the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 1, 26-30. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty, and the base things of the world, and the things which are despised, God has chosen, and the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and 
redemption. Verse 14 is the magnum opus of this passage and arguably the whole of God's word. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. This is, this is not speaking about general peace or relative peace, but a decisive peace between God and man. Scripture is very clear. Despite the clamor of our culture or the loud proclamations by the unsaved, we are all born enemies of God and all in need to trust in this little babe in a manger. Psalm 51.5 says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. In Romans 5.8-10, Paul says, But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath through him. For if when we were enemies... We were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Further, this peace is only granted to those God is pleased with. His great pleasure is extended to those he has chosen. As in the earlier verse, God reveals himself to the despised, calling them out of darkness into the light of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Obviously, Luke is not talking about a general peace that applies universally to everyone or an abstract peace that has no meaning beyond this temporal life. The pronouncement by the heavenly host is the glorious peace of God granted to sinners through the good news of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says this in Romans 5.1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And in Psalm 29.11, the Lord will give strength to his people. The Lord will bless his people with peace. The good news is not simply a starting point or the beginning but the sum total of all the Christian life and completely undergirds all that it means to be a Christian. We don't move beyond Christ as if he's the starting point for our growth and sanctification as believers, but rather Christ is our Christian life. All that we are begins and ends in him and him alone. It's interesting thinking about Paul's admonition to the Colossian believers in light of the declaration of the angel. Where Paul says in Colossians 22-23, Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, Why as though living in the world do you subject yourself to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using 
according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom and self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. We need to be very careful not to lose our grasp on the simplicity of the gospel. As illustrated earlier, we love him because he first loved us. The world, the flesh, and the devil work overtime to deceive us otherwise and persuade us to build a religion based on human merit, as Paul alludes to in this passage. Ultimately, we stand before God on the basis of the finished work of Christ and him alone, as Paul says earlier in Colossians 1.22, to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. The declaration of the angel of good news is nothing short of profound. This is good news the Lord gives to us. We don't stand faultless before his throne based on Christ plus the merits and offspring of the fruits of our sanctification. I have a number of uh, co-workers who live in uh, Korea that I work closely with. Um, in fact, one of them uh, came to church with us back in April. Some of you may recall meeting him, but they they are precious and dear people. And uh, I've grown to warm uh, to our friendship over the past uh, several years. The other day in, in staff meeting, we were comparing notes on Christmas uh, traditions. Obviously, we were doing this. They were on their side of the ocean. I was on mine, so we were doing this uh, via video conference. But I, uh, I felt a, a bit sheltered uh, to learn that many uh, in Korea, Christmas is simply uh, another day on the calendar. And uh, they have no concept of the birth of Christ. Obviously, they're very familiar with culturally the notion of Christianity, but Christian to them is Christmas to them is simply a religious holiday for those who hold to Christian traditions. It made me think of these uh, dear shepherds. The quintessential off-scouring of the earth. These, these poor shepherds occupied the lowest rung of the social strata. Yet an angel of the Lord, along with innumerable Heavenly host revealed themselves to these shepherds announcing 
glory to God in the highest. At the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. I marvel with the hymn writer Isaac Watts who said, Why was I made to hear thy voice and enter while there's room when thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come? I think we're going to see these shepherds someday in heaven. And the only way we stand faultless before the presence of his glory is by trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ and in him alone. Let's pray. Father, we we marvel at the simplicity and the good news of the gospel, we truly do love you, Father, only because you first loved us. We have no capacity to express love for you apart from Christ and apart from his redeeming work in our lives. We thank you that this day and all days we can remember the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you for revealing yourself on the pages of Scripture. Thank you for what you've put in our hearts and how you've caused us to be transformed. And it's, uh, again, we thank you for this time together. It's in Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. Merry Christmas.